Welcome back to Rethinking Politics, episode 63. There is a lot we want to talk about. In fact, there's so much that I completely forgot any current events that we were going to mention in passing. <laughs> something, something, a bill in Congress didn't go anywhere. Whatever. <laughs> things are happening. We don't want to talk <laughs> this about is any way of those things. This is way more. Not even a little bit. Not even in passing. <laughs> That's right. Not even a little Something about a gender plan. I don't, I don't even know. Anyway, we'll, we'll talk about those another time if they're interesting. Um, we, we got into some, uh, I guess what you might think of as comparative politics. Uh, we're looking at comparing different countries and in regards it's to really politics. In I don't know why they would call it that, Dan. <laughs> it's a, it's a valid question. Maybe we should come up with a better title, like, I don't know, cultural comparisons or those aren't allowed, I guess. Those are different. Anyway, what we're looking at here is something that I, I think very few people have any grasp of. Uh, is, is we look around the globe, you get different, uh, different assessments of foreign countries. And to some degree, any assessment is going to be somewhat superficial because you're not going to be able to capture the entire culture and the entire experience of living in the country and, and what the country's really like in mm-hmm. any brief way. Um, we joked about how we need to go live in all these countries before we talk to them and that this would be a, we just need to find somebody to who's willing to pay trip, for yeah. this wonderful experiment. Take us a few months. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> go, go tour, uh, tour the world. Um, but I, in particular, uh, one of the countries we want to talk about is, is Singapore because Singapore is so interesting. I had a friend point out to me some things about Singapore that are bizarre to say the least. And, uh, and noteworthy. And in some ways, this is a follow-up to what we were saying about China. I mean, when we we were trying to do an economic assessment of China and trying to predict what's going to happen there, uh, there's so many there's so many people talking about rising world powers, right? Obviously, China is one of them. The population is massive. And that gives them an edge in ways that it's just hard to manufacture in other other areas. India is another one. Um, as they're growing and as these things are happening, there's lots of investment. There's lots of uh, motion. There's, uh, and that gives people a sense that the world is changing and that these are the new players, right? These are the new big people. But all of the countries really are moving up or down in similar ways in terms of their economic status and their, their world influence and their power. and we have very little sense of that most of the time. We don't, we don't follow that. We don't track those kind of things. We know about America and we know about threats to the United States. And for those of you who are, I know there are several international listeners, um, <laughs> probably get sick of hearing about America. I know you guys also know about America because it's always in the news and in, in your places too. My apologies for exporting such nonsense most of the time, <laughs> but it is what it is, right? Thus it is. The, the world focuses on the few that it sees as the most powerful players. And that's the way history books work. That's the way lots of things work, whether it should or shouldn't. But what's really interesting about this is to dig into the economics. And that's what we want to look at. We want to look at countries that are rising in power. And we want to look at, at how they're doing it. Because there's, there's a lot of what seems to be very bad readings to me of other countries and yeah, why we, they're we successful want to play or why they're not. A few narratives that are heard on a pretty regular basis. One of those is, you know, look to, you know, an anti-capitalist argument, which is look to these, uh, these countries that are, that are mostly socialists that are incredibly prosperous, you know, look at the, uh, look at Sweden, look at, you know, so many other countries that are doing really, really well in terms of prosperity for, for the average citizen and say they they were able to do this because they got away from from the terrible capitalism and adopted these these policies that made it so much better and that's something we hear on a regular basis the other mm-hmm. one that you'll hear is you know conservatives who say you know America is is the only option you know when it comes to freedom it's America or bust and those are the kind of the two arguments that are that the two not even arguments, but narratives that are used on a pretty regular basis in our, you know, America-centric world. And so we wanted to kind of, well, look at it. We were curious, you know, what what is actually going on 
in these other countries? You know, what is going on that that you could have these countries that that are so-called socialist or have big government of some form or another and yet have this prosperity? You know, maybe maybe small government isn't the way to go. Maybe we should you know, adopt some kind of authoritarian (laughs) system if it results in everyone being better off, you know? Yeah, yeah, because the basic free market story is, is, look, you allow people to have freedom and it will make them more prosperous than if you try and direct things, right? It's it's central planning versus versus, uh, liberty and what is often referred to as the invisible hand, which is (laughs) <laughs> which has been crafted into a lot of nonsense as a, as a free market thinker who uh, the, I, I hate the term invisible hand. If you're wondering why it's absent from our, from our podcast, there is no invisible hand. Um, but uh, if, if you're saying that the key to prosperity is freedom, right? It's, it's, it's market interactions with as little uh, regulation or, or at least government level regulation as possible with little, you know, you want, you want, all of the things that a free market supposes uh, proposes, and that's the path to prosperity, then other countries doing it a different way are a obvious problem to the theory, right? If, if, if these countries have planned markets that are working as well or better, that's a problem, right? At that point, our, our evidence seems, it seems like we're, <laughs> we're arguing for something that's just so obviously false, and it's an argument that I haven't taken as seriously as I should have over the years because I didn't realize how, you know, how it was viewed by, by I think what pe- people mm-hmm. would describe themselves as pragmatists, right? People like, I think of the Weinsteins, Brett and Eric, and of course, Heather, Brett's wife, and, and the way they describe economics and things, right? They're looking, they're looking for what works mm-hmm. in, a, mm-hmm. in a very scientific manner, right? And so they look at the countries that are doing well, you know, the results are good. And they look at what they do. What can we emulate? They try and determine, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, what, what, do, yeah, what do we do? What do we do? What are they doing that works, and how do we emulate it? And uh, looking at Singapore in particular, which we'll get into in more detail, um, if you go and you Google it, and you go, you know, Singapore economy, they're they're extremely prosperous. They're doing really well in a in a variety of objective metrics. Why? And and. I heard all kinds of things proposed. They have a housing, planned housing market where, where the government takes care of housing for like 80% of the population through uh, subsidized housing and, and government-provided housing. Right? And people look at that and they go, that's amazing. People look at Denmark and they go, look, Denmark is doing really well. Look mm-hmm. at their socialized health care. And what's interesting about all these is that obviously these are correlations, right? To look at a feature of a government and to look at the results of the government overall, right? The whole, the whole result, prosperity for the, for the people there. It's very difficult to, to pick out the causal chain, right? Is this Mm -hmm. causing Mm -hmm. it? Is the, is the socialized healthcare, the cause of an efficient system that leads to prosperity? But that's what you'll, you'll, you'll hear a lot, right? And, we, and to, to some degree, you can't avoid that because the systems are so complex. You can't avoid being like, we're looking at correlations. Um, and that's, in, in essence, that's what we're going to be looking at today. But these are extremely detailed correlations. Go ahead. You no, I, I, I wanted to say something because I was going to say, so that's exactly what we're going to do. But, but, but what I was going to say on, <laughs> on top of that is, that is that what we found that was so interesting is that you look at Almost all of the countries that are listed as these shining examples of government intervention of some form or another. And and when you look at them and you look at their economic freedom, you will find a correlation that holds true for almost every single one of them, which is that they have a surprising degree of economic freedom. And so that's what we wanted to talk about today. We've actually got a couple of a couple of uh, of think tanks basically that have gone through and done assessments worldwide on economic freedom. And the first of those is by the Heritage Institute and they've got their uh economic freedom index which ranks the countries on i think it's 12 different 
12 different data sets, 12 different factors ranging, you know, property rights, judicial effectiveness, government integrity, tax burden, government spending, fiscal health, business freedom, labor freedom, monetary freedom, trade freedom, investment freedom, financial freedom. And they, they break down each of those into further subsets, which clarify, you know, what they're looking for. And the whole goal of all of these data sets is to assess on a very, you know, a very scientific level, you know, a, an impartial level, how much economic freedom there is in that country. And then you've got the uh, Fraser Institute, who has basically the same exact thing, but with some different priorities. And, and they go through and they look at each country based off of a few different factors, size of government, legal systems and property rights, sound money, freedom to trade internationally, and regulation. And But basically what both of these institutes are doing is they're, they're looking to find which countries allow people to enter and trade in markets and have their property protected in order to allow them to trade freely with each other. You know, basically the classic, you know, uh, Austrian economist view of of a free market, which countries have those? And they both have lists, and the lists are a little <laughs> bit different. But what's surprising is the countries that are at the top of those lists. Um, do you want? So, yeah, it is surprising. Yeah, what way you're looking at? I would just add that uh, you can, as Brennan's indicating, a massive amount of data goes into these. They've been doing these for years, both of them, the, the heritage and the heritage. I keep thinking foundation for some reason. They're, they're a think tank and probably Institute is the, the right title. I'm probably going to say foundation at some point, but the Heritage Institute and the Fraser Institute um, have been doing these for many Heritage years. Heritage for sure has been decades. doing it for decades. Uh, they're, right. So their, their methodology is very well thought out and refined um, in both cases. And as Brad was saying, they, they prioritize slightly different things. The Heritage Foundation tends to be more conservative, though they are free market. Um, and the Fraser Institute tends to be more libertarian. Um, if I had to pick which one's weighting I prefer, right? Because that's the key. The key is not just the data. The data doesn't explain there has itself. To be analysis you have to get the data, data about the, the actual things. Yeah. And then you have to weight the different factors based on how much you think it influences things, right? And what you, what you want is you're waiting to line up with the, uh, with the outcomes, right? So that if, if you've weighted it properly, then you've give significant weight to the law that makes the most difference, right? Mm -hmm. As opposed mm -hmm. to ones that make minor differences. And this takes years of refining and to some degree at the, at the very closest level. The weighting assessments are going to be somewhat. Yeah, arbitrary. I mean, I'm it's, I'm happy to, no way to, to say that looking at both of these data sets to at any point when you're when you're taking a country and you're you know refining it down to four or five four or five numbers, even when you're just talking about major economics, categories, you know, yeah. ignoring everything else, it, there's there's going to be some, yeah. you know, it's it's not going to be perfect. It's it's it's. It's not a hard science, and I don't think either of them are claiming it's a hard science, but it is incredibly useful, especially right. when they're being this meticulous. It is incredibly useful. Yes, when they're being so meticulous, they're so transparent. You can look at the methodology and you can see exactly how they break it down. You can look at the uh, uh, the, the raw data, even, if you want to. Um, and And overall, I think it's extremely useful. And especially, I mean, if you've got two countries that you know, they give you a total score for each country. And if you've got two countries that are scoring really close together, you know, the difference is probably, you know, the, think of it as a margin of error of a, of a couple points, right? Um, but that's also why we're looking at two data sets instead of one. We're looking at two assessments. We're looking at two, two uh, uh, reports. And, uh, and I think people will be really, really shocked at who on here is high up and who isn't. Yeah, I was going to say a, a great example of, of that discrepancy is, you know, for for the Fraser Institute, they have the United States ranked as number six out of all the countries. And then Heritage Institute mm -hmm. has the United States ranked uh, number 20, which seems like a huge difference. 
But when you're looking at at the difference between number 20 and number 10, you know, it's not a huge difference in terms of their actual score. And of course, their their scoring system is different, you know. Right. Heritage is out of 100, Frazier is out of 10, which is really annoying because if you just move the zero, their systems would be the exact same. <laughs> I was gonna say there's a decimal. Yeah, Frazier uses decimal points. So it is out of 100, but but I get, I mean, but anyway, carry on. <laughs> and and you'll see that for many different countries that that they do rank them differently, but not drastically. That if you look at if you look at who's in the top 20 for Frasier and who's in the top 20 for Heritage, there's a great deal of crossover that that there is that there yeah. is an understanding that they have they have both conned on to the same things, which is why they tend to agree in a large number of areas. And and Dan's already mentioned it, but right. Singapore, who is number one on the Heritage list, is number two on the Frasier list. So they've you know, there are some things that they definitely agree on, and one of those things is Singapore, which I found extremely odd. You know, th- the few things that I knew about Singapore were that the government was very heavy-handed. You know, Singapore's famous for <laughs> for their uh, their two things, really, in my opinion. It's uh, chewing gum and, and drug laws, you know, because everyone knows that you know, you can actually get arrested. You can get heavy fines. You can theoretically even get caned for for bringing chewing gum into the country, and and if you bring actual drugs into the country, if they're above a certain weight, depending on the drug, it's a mandatory death sentence. Not death sentence is the you know the highest possible sentencing you'll get if you have that amount of drugs. No, if you have above fifteen grams of heroin, you will be executed. Period. If you have above this many ounces of, of marijuana, you will be executed. Period. And that's it. It seems like a very authoritarian government. So having them be the most free economically is seemed insane to me, especially when you find out other things about the country, like the fact that so much of the property is is government owned or government subsidy, which means government interfered with in some way. It's not what you'd expect at all, Dan. Right. It's not. You mentioned that uh, the Fraser Institute has them as number two. The Fraser Institute has Hong Kong as number one. The Heritage Foundation mm-hmm. doesn't mm-hmm. have Hong Kong listed. And if you're familiar with the political mess around that as China has reabsorbed it, um, you can see why one of them might not even list it. Because it's in, yeah, in many it's, ways, it's, it's not an changing. independent country anymore. Uh, yeah, you go back, you go back a couple of years, and Hong Kong will be number one on every list every time. And Hong Kong is, and that's that's important because Hong Kong actually influenced a lot of these other uh, countries in significant ways, particularly Singapore and New Zealand, who uh, who were looking at what Hong Kong did and uh, and mimicking a lot of the economic freedoms. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. I a lot of the countries people don't wouldn't uh wouldn't expect on this Heritage Foundation one. The I'm looking at Switzerland as number four, uh Denmark as number ten, right? Finland is seventeen, Sweden is right by the United States, the United States is twenty, Sweden's twenty-one. Right? These are these are not countries you think of mm-hmm. as bastions or of the Australia free at number three. That one, that and one yet, definitely surprised me. <laughs> right, right, right. Which reminds me to point out: this is not taking yeah, into account anything that's happened with COVID. These reports are not general policies, policies, not not COVID related. Because yes. Australia's got <laughs> Australia. some horrendous COVID specific uh. <laughs> policies, but but it's surprising that a country that would be so restrictive during COVID would be so free otherwise. You know, it's unexpected for sure. Right. And, and it's interesting. So if you were to say, if you were to ask someone judging the countries based on on the Heritage Foundation's uh, index, where the U.S. is number 20, there are a lot of countries where, in theory, a free market thinker would think, would, would trade mm-hmm. straight across the laws, right? They'd be like, I will take the economic Over laws the United of States. Denmark. Over the economic ones of the U.S. And there's a real argument for that. And if you're looking at Denmark as this bastion of socialism in a, you know, a mm-hmm. moderate socialism mm-hmm. that works, that's probably surprising. 
That's, that's an economic analysis of Europe puts, puts them very differently than when we're looking at the one big policy, when we're looking at, oh, they've socialized healthcare. So that must mean, you know, we make all kinds of assumptions based on that. Um, which is interesting because we were, t- I was talking about the, the, the videos I watched on Singapore praising their governance and the ways in which the government has planned the economy. And these studies suggest that Singapore is the least planned economy in the world. Right? What, what does that suggest? Right? That's, that, that should at least be interesting, right? I'm pointing at a, this doesn't prove anything, right? But shouldn't that be known? That Singapore, which has gone from ridiculous poverty in 1960s to the 1970s, where the Labour Party leaders elected, who are still in charge today, uh, not the same people, but the same party is in charge. They, uh, let me find this quote. This was so interesting. This is what, uh, uh, the party leader. Oh my goodness. I didn't write his name down. Silly. I'll, uh, I'll post it later. Uh, quote through Hong Kong watching. I concluded that state welfare and subsidies blunted the individual's drive to succeed. I watched with amazement, the ease with which Hong Kong workers adjusted their salaries upward in boom times and downwards in recessions. I resolved to reverse course on the welfare policies which my party had inherited or copied from British Labour Party policies. Close quote. This is like uh, late 60s, early 70s. And this is what they do. Hong Kong goes from being a very central planned government, a very, uh, the Labour Party's in charge, right? They're basically, uh, they're not socialists in the full sense, but they're there's certainly much more of that than, than they are free markets, right? They're, they're the part of the progressive movement per se. And, and, and then they start rejecting all these policies. They have, uh, to this day, their welfare system is minimal. Um, they, they have very little in terms of a safety net. Uh, they have, uh, and they, and they thought that was because it would change personal incentives, right? Individual incentives matter. And so they, they removed those things. Uh, <laughs> New Zealand's another example of this that, that did this, where they, they actually had uh, Labour Party leaders in office who were looking at places like Hong Kong and were like, oh my goodness, all the things that we're trying to achieve through planning occur naturally by changing the incentives mm-hmm. in a free market direction. And so they reversed course. It's a really interesting story in New Zealand that we won't get into too much. Where the, the Labour Party comes to the, <laughs> comes to the people and says, we have to eliminate all the central planning and subsidies that we've been doing. And they cut it, they cut it down like, they cut taxes by 50%. They eliminate all kinds mm-hmm. of, uh, subsidies. Uh, they allow for free trade and reduce the tariffs significantly. Like it's a, it's a massive overhaul of the government mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the direction of free markets yeah. that we don't hear about. Um, I know there are European parallels too, European countries that were, that were enforcing labor policies that then shifted significantly back towards free market policies because they were observing foreign countries mm-hmm. that we don't even yeah. talk about in the US. We don't even look at or think about and said, that's working. Let's and do it's, that. It's interesting, Dan, because, because a lot of these policies you're talking about, these free market policies aren't the ones in the United States that we very often focus on. You know, when we talk about socialism in the United States, right. you know, we talk about, I mean, more than anything, we talk about socialized medicine. You know, that is the debate that, that rages on and on mm-hmm. and on. But, but socialized medicine is just one aspect of, of the economy. You know, a great example of that is Canada, right? Canada is is the socialist country we're always hearing about. And yet on both of these economic lists, Canada is, I mean, with the Heritage Foundation, Canada is is better than the United States. And then on the Fraser list, it's it's a little bit behind the United States, but still, but comparable. In both cases, it's not that (laughs) different from the United States in terms of economic freedom, even though it's a so-called, you know, socialist country. Because socialized medicine is just is just one aspect, and so many, and in many ways, 
not as important in terms of economic freedom than so many of these other factors. You know, in the United States, we argue all day and all night about about things like socialized socialized medicine and whether or not it's okay, you know, with Obamacare. And yet things like Biden's infrastructure plan is far less controversial than Obamacare ever was. And you can argue about how controversial it is, but for sure it's far less controversial than Obamacare. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yet in many ways it has a much more devastating impact on the economy because so much of it consists of subsidies and restrictions and manipulations of the legal system that make it more difficult for businesses to trade with each other. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's in, There's so many interesting things that we can draw from this list. Let me, let me point out one more thing before we, we dig into to Singapore specifically and look, look at it because it is number one, basically, uh, if you look at the Fraser Institute and you, you filter by the best legal systems and property rights, this is one of their five categories. Uh, you can look at what the breakdown is in the methodology section. This is, this is how well they're protecting private property, even from government and laws, right? A lot of people talk about we need, we need to be able to let go of our own you know, individual <laughs> property and things and put it for the common good. We need to be able to move forward together. So here are the top nations by that metric on the Fraser Institute. Number one, Switzerland. Number two, New Zealand. Denmark. Finland. Norway. Iceland. Netherlands. Austria. Australia. Singapore. Luxembourg. Canada. Sweden. Germany. We've covered almost every major European socialist country, right? <laughs> the ones that people point to. They are the highest ranking on legal systems and property rights. So if you look at them and you go, look, these guys have implemented a lot of socialist policies and they're doing fine, right? They're still prospering. Their people are doing fine. Maybe, maybe that's, could be because their economic systems are actually remarkably free in various ways, right? And as objective a measure as we have of it in comparison of nations out there, which is what I think these studies are, these these reports are, suggest that in some ways they are among the very best at economic freedom. And that's, I think that's counter to the narrative that people, people have in their heads um, about the way what European is, the directions it's moving, and, and the causation of their prosperity. If you think that we can get to where some of these nations are, and in some ways they're, they're better off than we are by some metrics, if you think that we can mimic those metrics by applying the socialist side, how about we apply some of the economic side? <laughs> how about we take Switzerland's uh, mm -hmm. property mm -hmm. rights protections, right? How about we take uh, <laughs> a lot of others? I, I think Hong Kong and Singapore are the, the best examples. Um, mm -hmm. Their freedom to trade internationally, right? the, the get rid of our it's tariffs, get rid of a lot of those agreements. other things. How about we take, right, right, the regulations. This is what Singapore and New Zealand cut down on. They're the top of that category, right? Yeah, the number, this of, is, the number these of barriers are, to entry in the United that, States that make it so difficult to compete. You know, it's something we've talked about before with, with these big businesses that, you know, we're worried about these big businesses having all this power. And it's like, we'll, we'll take away that power in the form of government protection, in the form of barriers to entry that make it hard for other companies to compete. You know, there are so many regulations that make it so that if you don't have a big business, you can't afford to deal with those regulations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and there's, there's a, there is a movement in, in the way that people talk about politics and economics towards, towards pragmatism. And, and I think that's great in some ways. But if with that pragmatism, what you take is a dislike of theories that try and explain the whole. You end up picking pieces and that can be perhaps devastating. You need to <laughs> right, 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 right. You might miss the fact that you should be looking for these things when you look at these countries, right? I, we knew to look for these things because we have a sense of, of what drives things in a holistic way. 
um, that is extremely helpful that it lets that lets us look at the pieces and try and fit them in. Um, now, certainly, there's you know that can also lead to bias and different things, and and certainly uh, there are going to be circumstances where a decision that goes against a general principle actually turns out to work better in the circumstance, and at least in the short run. Um, but the pragmatism of Singapore and New Zealand, in particular, and and uh, I want to say it was Denmark as well who recently. And by recently, I mean, I think in that same period, 70s or 80s, made a major turn towards free markets. Their pragmatism led them to embrace a lot of free market principles, which is interesting, right? It's, a, it's, it's not what people generally think of. Um, and you'll note that China, we're never going to discuss China on this list because China is extremely low on all of them. Now, they can achieve, you can achieve great things by simply stealing all the property and resources of your people and applying them towards your goals. North Korea is the bottom of this yeah. list. <laughs> they're, they're, and it's not by a small margin. Like, it, it, it's interesting the way, uh, like, uh, Singapore's number one. But it, uh, on, like, the Heritage Institute in, in particular, Singapore is number one with a significant gap between them and everybody else. They've got a, they've got a lead, right? They're not just slightly better than number two. They're significantly better. And the same, by the same metric... Uh, North Korea is significantly worse than the second worst. Mm-hmm, it's like mm-hmm. a 20 point gap or something like that out of a hundred. <laughs> it's, it's really bad. But anyway, anyway, you should take a look at these lists. They're really interesting. They're really interesting. And they provide, if these principles mean th- something, right? If, if, if tracking these things actually reflects an effect on the world, then this list should correspond roughly to, to nations that are growing and progressing. And, uh, and doing well in the world. And does it do that? Yes, I think it does. I think it absolutely does. And I think it provides an extremely useful explanation, uh, you know, from the <laughs> a 300 foot viewpoint, right? This isn't looking at specific laws per se, um, but overall of, of why nations are doing better or worse mm-hmm, mm-hmm, in economics mm-hmm. and prosperity. No, and I, I think, I think there are also some, some interesting, interesting things you can, you can get from it. Like uh, India, for example, is pretty darn low on the list, kind of like China is. And and that, yeah. at first you'd say, no, it doesn't make sense because India is growing and India is accomplishing more. And say, so, yeah, but it also makes sense because India is not the powerhouse that it could be. And I think as India works to have a more stable system that allows for free economic movement, it will excel and it will grow. You know, that India and China, just based off of their populations and their productivity, should be should be dominating the world markets even more than they are. Now, especially India should be dominating the world in a way that it's not. Mm-hmm. And I think a large part of that is because is because of of their lack of economic freedom. And you can you can listen to actual stories about India and about what it's like to live in India and and the difficulties that there are and the the many different issues that make it difficult to be successful in India and those are very real. Yeah, yeah, what's interesting is if you look at some of these like Singapore uh is the perfect example. And you see what you see is a trajectory, right? As they embrace more free market, they become more prosperous and more influential to the point where Singapore, which is an island of 6 million people that has virtually yeah, zero no reason for natural it to be successful resources at all. can become an, <laughs> right, right. There is no reason. They don't have the population. They don't have the, the natural resources. Um, they're an island that, uh, I guess I don't know much about the geography there. Their geography may put them in a convenient place for trade and things. Uh, but, but even, even if they're not like Hong Kong wasn't in a particularly advantageous place. Um, and it became an economic powerhouse. Um, if Singapore had more people, it would be crazy influential. It'd be way more powerful than China and India Like it, for its, it, and if you saw India doing this kind of thing, if you saw India uh, have this kind of arc and rise, it would become the world power. It would become, it'd become extremely powerful. Um, Singapore's competitive in manufacturing, right? In ways the U S just hasn't been for forever. And they're, they're doing that on a tiny Island 
where every land, bit of land is worth a fortune because it's so small, right? Just so, so densely packed. It's like two thirds the size of Manhattan. Uh, it's, it's really small. Uh, they've become a connecting hub. One of the big things they, they rank really high on is, uh, is their international trade, right? This is, this is stuff like uh, tariffs and things like that that you want to keep low. By doing that, they've become a place where people will come to do things like refine oil. They don't have oil, but people will come there to refine it. Right? They, don't, they don't have the natural resource that is the most indicative of like natural wealth, oil. And yet they're an oil powerhouse just because they will, they've, their barriers to international trade and things are so low that it becomes worth it for people rather than to refine it in their own countries to come there to refine it. Like that's, that's crazy. <laughs> like you don't have to have anything going for you <laughs> to be economically prosperous. Just clearly an effective indicator of something that's going on, something that, that is making the difference between a country like Russia that, that has so many natural resources that, that continues to struggle, and then a country like Singapore that has so little. And, and what's the, what, what is, what is the, the, the connecting point? Is it, because if, it, if it's, you know, that we need more socialized options, then shouldn't a country like, like Russia that had them even, even further back in the past be doing better? Or is it something else? Or is it something else? Right, exactly. You get, I mean, looking at Singapore, you mentioned you don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to live in Singapore, despite their prosperity, right? <laughs> if you get the economics right, you will be prosperous. Now, you may not have other things. Like, I, I would wonder uh, how much innovation is happening there. You know, I don't know what their intellectual property and things is like. I don't know what, I don't know what, uh, I know they, they mm -hmm. do things like censor their news. Right? There's significant censorship of news. Yeah, there are big um, government they have things a, there uh, that would be crazy to us. <laughs> they yeah, they're, uh, they force you to have a 20% to save 20% of your income. And then an employer contributes a certain amount of that. This is partially how they avoid or how they, uh, they deal with welfare type mm -hmm. stuff. They mm -hmm. make you save money. And this is, <laughs> this is not free, right? This is not a, this is not a, a liberty, no, not a bastion of liberty. Um, but what they do allow for is they allow people to start businesses and to exchange goods and services and to make money off of that. They don't have a capital gains tax. They don't have a death tax, no inheritance tax at all, zero. Uh, their, their corporate tax is half of ours, uh, or at least it was. No, and 17%. I think there's, 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 there's one thing that I think people would argue, the, the pragmatists would argue about Singapore that I agree with, that, that Singapore, you know, authoritarian or not, is stable, is clear, and is simple mm -hmm. in terms of its laws. You know what you're going to get. Argue as much as you want about how ethical or how morally right it is to force people to save 20%. The fact of the matter is, is that if that's the rule for everyone, and everyone understands it, then you can work around it. You can mm -hmm. build, you know, a successful career even within that system, you can create your own business and that doesn't interfere with that as much as having a more complicated, you know, system like, you know, the United States, you know, tax code, which is incredibly complicated and incredibly difficult to navigate, even though it may be cheaper for many individuals than the Singapore system. The fact that the Singapore system is so simple makes things easier to navigate and makes it easier for people to prosper. And that's absolutely the case. Yeah, yeah. If you consider that 20% as a tax, then, uh, then certainly there are arguments to be had that their tax rates are really high. Um, if you don't, then, uh, then their tax rates are actually really low. Um, but that 20% 20, 20 is no joke out of your paycheck, right? That's a big deal. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely. a big deal. Yeah, no, that would be um, rough. Yeah, it, it's an interesting place. The more we looked into it, the more it seems like a place of a uh, in some ways, the size of it, like you were suggesting, it makes a big difference, I think. The fact that it's, a, it's essentially a city-state, and it's a, it's, a, it's a local government in some sense of six million people. Mm -hmm. New York has more people, a lot more people, than Singapore does. And that makes, that makes a big difference. Um, 
but but it is interesting in terms of like the scope of what government does. It's relatively small, despite the things they do are big, and like the laws they enforce can often be really oppressive. <laughs> really oppressive. The the execution of people selling drugs is pretty hardcore. No, absolutely, absolutely. And so and so, what's our takeaway from this, Dan? What what are we what are we learning from from Singapore? You know, are are we just wandering in the dark here? Or do we have something that? That, that we've learned from it. And I asked the question, and now I'm going to answer it, because there, there are some things that, that I feel like I've learned from this navigating. And Dan, if there's more points you want to cover, no, go for it. feel free to jump in after I start drawing some conclusions. But but for sure, the, 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 the thing I keep thinking about is these countries saw what Hong Kong had done, and Hong Kong itself did it, and they right. they made changes in order to allow for prosperity, right? You know, that that was really their goal. These people weren't like, oh, we love economic freedom. You know, we're not, this weren't a bunch of, you know, of Austrian economists who were enamored with the free markets who were like, we have to do this. No, these were pragmatists who were looking out for, for their for their country and said, what can we do to make things better? Look at this. This is working. Let's try and implement it. That's all fine and good mm-hmm. because because anyone can do that. What's crazy is that they did it. What's crazy is that they were able to do things like like get rid of the subsidies, you know, talking about New Zealand getting rid of subsidies for farmers. That's crazy. The United States has never been able to do that because anytime you try and get rid of a subsidy, those interest groups, you know, throw up a stink. And nothing happens because the, because you end up in this gridlock. And that's something that I think is worth talking about is the fact that in the United States, part of the reason we keep sticking with these four or five big ticket political issues and ignoring so many other things that are really only thought about and argued about by special interests is the fact that our political system is really just so broken that doing what these countries have done is just not is not possible in our current political makeup. It's just not. It's just not. I just don't see a way that it could happen the way things are set up now. Which which brings me to 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 what I think that the answer is, and I think the answer is federalism. And I keep thinking about the fact that federalism is so associated with the uh, the far right, as it's called. You know, neoconservatives are are those who are pushing for federalism. And I think that's a mistake from from those who are who are the pragmatists on the left. That I think if you want things to actually happen, that a country like Singapore can do it because they're small, because they're able to actually make things happen. And I think if we allowed the states to have more control over their own economies, that would make a huge difference. Right now, the federal government interferes in the economy in far, far too many ways. And then if we move that over to the states, we'd have some states that were quite restrictive on Mm -hmm. economic freedoms. And you'd have some states that were much more free, like Singapore, in that economic sense. And you would see immediately, or at least very quickly, the power of that economic freedom. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, Obviously, there are categories of economic freedom that only the federal government controls, things like international trade. uh, absolutely. But for a lot of them, you're absolutely right that what we could, what you could do is, uh, as you said, is, is make them let the states do it. Let the states be different and embrace different economic policies. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it makes me think, cause I'm looking at this and as we've been talking about it, um, so many of the, so many of the best evidence for the free market are extraordinarily pragmatic arguments. As you said, that's, that's what converted a bunch of labor party leaders into turning and making a very difficult case to their people in which they say, cause they had existing mm-hmm. welfare systems. They had existing subsidies. Like you were saying, they had existing handouts of all kinds and they were able to pull the plug on that. Um, and to make that case and, and, it's interesting because I don't know if that case had come from another quarter, if they could have, if they could have made that. It was, it was people who believed in central planning becoming converted to something else and wanting to try something else. Um, and this kind of, 
this way of looking at these international countries and seeing the, the trends they're doing um, is, is, I think, the best way to make these kind of arguments. Uh, I think, as one other conclusion from it, I think the way, the reason that, I don't think socialized healthcare is a good idea. I think it's a terrible idea. But if you want to have the prosperity to be able to endure a few terrible ideas, <laughs> you know, to be able to do something like socialized healthcare, where basically have every all housing be public housing. The key is to have a ridiculous amount of economic freedom. Because then you have the wealth mm -hmm. to do those things. You can, one of the interesting things on this, uh, one of the categories is the scope of government. Um, in the, is it, I think it's in the Fraser Institute one, right? And all of the countries that are doing really well in every other area are doing really badly in the scope of government. And partly that's at, least, at least not, not doing, doing well, well yeah, yeah, yeah. in the scope of government. They're, middle they're, of the pack. They're not near the, they're not doing well. They're, they're in the middle of the pack, as you said, generally. And that's almost unavoidable because they have so much money compared to other countries. They, when you have resources, you want to do more with them. You feel like you can politically choose mm -hmm, to. Mm -hmm. you know, you're, not, you're not starving people, generally speaking, to pass a government program. Um, unlike places like China and North Korea, where it's coming directly at the expense of the people. Uh, and that kind of, there's a kind of luxury uh, level of government spending that only comes in countries that have remarkably free economies. Yeah, that you can have you can have countries like Canada and Sweden and Denmark that have you know a myriad of different government you know so-called socialist policies like you know you know parental mm -hmm. leave and and required PTO and and you know socialized medicine that on paper seem incredibly anti anti market and yet it's it works because so much of the market is free, you know, and that and that taken as a whole, even factoring in those things, a lot of those countries are more free than the United right. States right now. You know, that that I'd be comfortable, you know, as you Dan said, doing a trade for trade in terms of in terms of economic laws with some of those countries. You know, in, in many ways I'd be okay trading you know, trading our current our current economic legal system for yeah. that of Sweden's, you know, across the board, you know, we'll take, we'll take your government interventions over our government interventions because in many cases, our government <laughs> interventions are. are worse. As we mentioned during our healthcare episode, a centralized one probably wouldn't even be worse than what we're doing. <laughs> than what we have Might now. Might be an improvement. Exactly. Because, because it's not like we have, we, it's not like we have a free no. market healthcare mm -hmm. system. You know, it's not like we have the th free market here today in the United States in many different areas. And that's, and that's part of what we're talking about here is that on the economic freedom scale, the U.S. is not number one. There are many areas where the United States struggles with economic freedom more than so-called socialist European yeah, and countries. Yeah, if you wanted to do, if you wanted to, on that note, if you wanted to improve the U.S., like if there were, if there's a weak area in which you could move the U.S. forward, um, the uh, international trade and size of government, I guess, are the two. <laughs> And their legal system and property rights, they're all right there, kind of middle of the pack. Never mind. I was going to point to a singular one. <laughs> I, I was thinking... <laughs> to a single one. <laughs> Turns out we're mediocre on several categories. But that... Which is fair. Which I'd yeah, say is w fair. You know, we're, we're, not, we're not horrible in any area, but we're, we're not also great not in great any area, area except for sound money, which is not even... Which some people will be like, what? That's the category we ranked high on? Well, I was about to say... That one's interesting because that one, the Heritage and uh, mm -hmm. Frazier disagree on. That Frazier says the U.S. is doing great with its with its money policy in yeah. terms of economic freedom. And Heritage says the U.S. Yes, is well, doing and Heritage terrible, is looking so. more at the policies. And uh, Frazier seems to be looking more at the actual how it functions. Because you can have, how it yeah, you can have bad policies, but the effects are not that significant. Because the U.S. is the reserve currency, right, and because of you know, because of factors that have little to do with uh, 
with the actual policies themselves. So, yeah, the fact that the U.S. is horribly in debt and uses the uses the Fed in such a strange and convoluted and truly stupid way is not the reason that it's difficult for me to open a business. The reason it's difficult for me to open a business is because mm-hmm. of regulations and and red tape and these different factors, and and it's not because of the U.S.'s money policies. So in that way, I understand. Yeah. You know, well, right. I understand where both of them are coming from. Fraser is saying that's not the main problem, and Heritage is saying that is the main problem. It's just, it's just a more yes. indirect yes. Yes. problem. And yeah, one of them's more function, one of them's more uh, cause, and the, the where it's coming from. Yeah, they, both of them do make sense. Um, but uh, freedom to trade internationally is one we could easily improve on. I don't know why we haven't had a president in a long time that was good on this from either party. Both parties are very similar in this. Both mm-hmm. parties are very mm-hmm. similar in how they apply our economic spread. No, and, and you're right, Dan, and that's one where <laughs> where my federalism idea would have no water at all because one of the very first things that the U.S. government was designed <laughs> yeah. to have was a uniform yeah. Yeah. trade policy. Yeah, but it's also maybe the easiest one to change at the federal level because the president can do it almost unilaterally. I mean, you, you have to get two-thirds of the Senate to approve any treaty. But they would they would approve it if you had a president who really you know pushed some uh for more freedom in that sphere but anyway interesting stuff this has been uh i've loved looking at this i i look at this every we've looked at this before in years past uh i've been kind of tracking these things over uh i guess nearly a decade now maybe a decade oh my goodness (laughs) <laughs> that's a weird thought. <laughs> Almost 10 years that I've been looking at these numbers and these reports. Um, and they present a very, very different story of economic prosperity around the world than what we're used to, than the than the sound bites we get from politicians mm-hmm. and other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not, these are things you don't see. Even if you lived there, you probably wouldn't notice these things, right? You wouldn't come out with a sense of how regulated it is compared to other countries. You wouldn't come out of it with a sense of how sound their money is relative to others, you know, the the, the nuances of their legal <laughs> system, right? These things are almost invisible, whereas a socialized healthcare system is looming right in front of your face. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, it's these unseen factors that can have a a huge impact on how the country actually operates. And with that, thank you for listening. This has been an episode of Rethinking Politics. You can find us on all of the major podcasting apps or on YouTube. You can reach out to us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com or you can visit our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com where you can support us via Patreon. Thanks and have a wonderful day.